Welcome to Story Comic Presents, where we interview amazing storytellers and artists. This is episode 221. I'm your host, Barney Smith of StoryComic.com, and we're excited to have with us the internationally acclaimed and award-winning writer oh, and game designer and owner, Jamie Chambers. Jamie. Hi. Thanks for having me doing? on. I'm doing good. You're welcome. You tripped over the first hurdle there. <laughs> it's true though it is true because in your bio you have won awards i, I have one of, i have won a number of awards yeah, that's right um, yeah I, I took i did have like like i said i recently uh got a, a new day job and i took uh my origins award uh and or i the one i did for my biggest project and i, I popped in it because that's the equivalent of having an oscar you know in the game industry so so yeah, that was. I have won awards. I have been published in other languages. So it's. I mean, nothing you said was technically not true, but I feel very uncomfortable anyway. It's like, especially <laughs> it's these true. days because I haven't done anything in a while. Um, and so what you do have though is like one of the things we we're talking about before. When you also have a very, an extremely fun podcast that I actually started listening to as well called Chainsaw History. I listened to your George Washington episode. Oh, so that where we got where we first started. So, so before when we we want to jump into it, and I know there's a, a lot of questions, a lot of fun stuff that I want to talk to you about. Do you want to first kind of give people a little bit of background for those that might not be familiar with your history, how you got into writing both prose books and then also uh, game design? Sure. I mean, when you want to go really way back, I mean, I got into write. I got I got into writing and and playing tabletop games the same year. It was literally third grade. I was eight years old. I started writing assignments just for class and uh, just, you know, little, little short story kind of things when I was eight years old and my teacher uh, encouraged me to enter the local young authors fair. Okay. And so I submitted this stupid little short story I wrote about a cat and uh, I, I won first place that year. And I found both I, that I enjoyed both writing and I enjoyed the attention I could get from from doing that sort of thing. So literally I, I entered the young authors fair locally in my school every single year and and took home a blue ribbon every single year from third through eighth grade. Okay. And so that was part of it. And then the same year, eight years old, was 1983. And one day my dad brought me home the big D&D red box, the Larry Elmore, you know, cover with the red dragon on it. And I had already gotten, I'd already gotten to like sort of play D&D with some older kids, but I didn't know what was going on. But the moment I got that box set, that was like my two kind of obsessions were set in front of me, like that were for the rest of my life. It's like, well, I love stories, both reading and writing them, and I enjoy games, and I like mixing right. the two a lot. So, right. like, no matter what else I'm doing in my life, those things will always be going on. And that's kind of it's where that started. Um, in terms of how it, I got into more of a professional kind of thing, um, I was right. So now we fast forward to the end of high school. And this is, so now we're in 1993, like 10 years later. And um, I have been, you know, at this point, a D&D obsessed guy for that entire decade. And I was reading Dragon Magazine and I kept seeing that uh, TSR, the company that published D&D, was, uh, they finally created like an online presence in the very fledgling internet. Um, so back, so for the boys and girls listening at home who don't remember the dark times, when you used to have to like dial up with a fax machine noise just to to get this crappy little signal, um, we had instead of having just like a 
just an internet connection that you would pay for. Like you literally had an online service. You had to dial in with a phone and they were kind of wall, little walled gardens. So you'd have like, you'd have CompuServe and then later on you had like the Sierra network later on America online. But one of the earliest ones was called Genie and it was run by General Electric and TSR uh, was on GE's service and they had what they called the TSR online Roundtable. So uh, all the, they would host all the major like writers and game designers associated with D&D and all the other stuff going on with TSR in the 90s. So I just kind of joined up and spent way more money than I should have because it was like hourly fees on this thing. I ran up like a $300 bill the first month and I had to work it off. But I got so involved with the the stuff that was going on with TSR Online at the time that, um, so it's like within a couple of months of being, being involved, like I got elected president of the very first online gaming club that I'm aware of, at least. I've never, we've never learned of an earlier one than us. So There's like one that came out like three months later. But uh, I like, we had something like just under 200 members. Like I was 19 years old by, you know, at that point. Uh, that was with the Role Playing Game Association, which was kind of an offshoot of TSR. And then not only that, but they're like, well, we can get this kid to do a bunch of work for free. So, so they basically, uh, they made me a staff member, which is kind of like, being, I was like an online intern. Uh, mm-hmm. And I got free access to the TSR area. As long as I stayed inside their little walled garden, I wouldn't incur the hourly access fees. And in exchange for this privilege and plus free product, TSR had me do all kinds of work for them on that. So I was, I was hosting and moderating chats. So I was literally doing what you're doing right now, except I was on your end and it was pure text only just, just uh, moderated chats with a bunch of fans asking questions. So that's how I got to know originally like Ed Greenwood and Jeff Grubb and Tracy Hickman and all these like names of, uh, you know, both authors and game designers and some artists. And so like, I, I started like talking to these people literally every week and I was part of this little community. And then that kind of, at that point, uh, it was just inevitable. I started volunteering for anything anybody wanted me to do. Cause I was just, I was a little fanboy, and they started giving me work and that kind of led to opportunities and to actually earn freelance dollars, right for things. And I moved on to a, to a full on career from there. Uh, I, I got out of college. I was in college at the time. Did one year in the real world before I got a full-time job offer in the game industry. And I was like, and I'm gone. Wow. Okay. And when, when and what was that position? Uh, that was when I moved, uh, I moved up to Wisconsin to work uh, as a writer game designer full-time originally for Sovereign Press. Uh, it was Larry Elmore's Sovereign Stone was the game setting that we were doing at the time. Okay. Wow. So yeah. And I've, and- yeah. I've known all these people. So it's like a combination of that. At the same time, I started going to conventions and I started spending a lot of time uh, meeting people uh, at some of those. So like, that's how I got to know a lot of the artists like Larry Elmore and I have worked together many times and been friends for years. Um, right. <laughs> and so and so and so and so from there, you really started really concentrating on basically just uh, Dungeons and Dragons then as a as a writer for that. Well, in the well, weirdly, the weird thing was in the beginning, I was working on non D&D based games but okay. then when, when we hit the year 2000 that was when dnd third edition came out and this crazy thing happened to our industry uh called the open game license suddenly any publisher could publish dnd compatible stuff and so anybody who was a gamer back then suddenly knew that everything became dnd for a couple of years like there was everything was d20 compatible right 
so I took I, I took Sovereign Stone, which was originally a non D and D game, and then uh, we used the we, and and part of the problem with Sovereign Stone was it a lot of the talent from the artists to the writers were all associated with D and D, and yet we were giving the audience a non D and D fantasy game, and suddenly the open game license presented this opportunity. It's like, well, we could give them the D and D game that they're all wanting anyway. So we married Sovereign Stone uh, to the D twenty system. And then I became for several years uh, between uh, Sovereign Stone and Dragonlance, I was doing um, exclusively D and D for a few years. Right. And then, then the whole other, then it flipped, and uh, just as the market was going good, we had the opportunity to do a game uh, based on Firefly, uh, you know, okay. or at least the movie based on that. And it D and D was the wrong rule set for that kind of of experience. So that was when I stripped everything down and built a new game for that right so, so talk to I, us a bit about that, that did not use a d20 right so talk to us a bit about that system that you that you helped create um yeah that was uh the cortex system right which uh these days has been sold a couple of times it, it now below i don't even remember the name of the company it was fandom entertainment owned it until a couple months ago and then they mm. sold it off to a, another digital company but they um, but the Cortex system, uh, the, the basic idea was, was to have a game, uh, with very streamlined mechanics where it was like my kind of goal going in was I wanted, I wanted to the way you would play. And I wanted the fun you would get from either being a combat focused character versus someone who is more a socially focused character or a technically focused character. So I'm you're thinking Firefly. I'm thinking, do you want to be one of, do you want to be a Jane Mal or Zoe, or do you want to be a Kaylee Simon or, or, you know, Wash? Right. And I wanted it to be just as much fun to play, you know, the quote unquote wimp characters and have them have lots of stuff to do. And I wanted the, the rules to be just as engaging and feel the same no matter what. So that was kind of the idea. Um, and then we used, uh, we used every, uh, every dice in the bag except D20. We kind of rejected, <laughs> we rejected the D20 system uh, completely. <laughs> and so was that based off of just the, the idea of saying we don't want any D20 or did you just have that, well, that system is, evolve into that? Well, it, it was an evolution because um, it actually, funny enough, like I said, I told you I started working originally with Sovereign Stone. Right. And the original Sovereign Stone game system was designed by my friend Lester Smith. And... It had this, I mean, I loved it. I had this beautiful, elegant game engine. It just wasn't the right one for a very kind of D&D-esque fantasy world. So so I like, even though I pulled Sovereign Stone away from this game I really liked, I, I was like, well, these, these mechanics are still really good. We need to find the right thing for them. So I kind of stripped the Sovereign Stone game engine down to its very most basic things and even kind of pulled a few extra things off and then rebuilt it into the Cortex system. But that's also one of the reasons why every uh, Cortex product that I did always thanked Lester, uh, you know, as part of it and acknowledged the fact that he created the original rules. It's kind of like um, anybody who plays uh, Fate right now, uh, Fudge was kind of the original system they based that on. So it's kind of the right. same relationship as Sovereign Stone was kind of the, or better to say Cortex is kind of like the spiritual successor to, to the original Sovereign Stone game engine. Uh, where we just, but I just kind of like, I, I really like the basic dice mechanics and the flow. And it's like everything else kind of came off from there. And now how, how does that work for instance, for, to create that, 
system, how how long did it take you to play test it to kind of hone in any of the uh, any of the issues with it? Um, well, ultimately, it took a couple of years, um, but, but we had something we could play within a couple of weeks. Like, okay, I mean, I, the the good news was I wasn't inventing the wheel because I was kind of like taking some pre-existing basic mechanics. I at least had it was like the, having the frame of the car to build them everything on as opposed to having to start from literally nothing so right. i had kind of within like two weeks of coming up with the idea i had like character sheets and a basic idea of how the game would go and something we could actually test out and then from there though it took a long it was many iterations many work and even after we published we kept working on the game mm. now so from there too is like with that with with, with cortex um do you prefer because this seems to be both your wheelhouses? Do you like game design of a system, or do you like game design as in the world building piece? What ones did you yes. feel more comfortable doing? <laughs> yes. Um, honestly, it's it's both. Um, I mean, the truth is, I mean, at this point, I have I've designed two complete role playing system engines, and I don't know that I'm looking like. It's cool, but like there are other people who are better at it than me that can that are really innovative and and do these really cutting edge things. Like my my games, I, I like to think. I mean, I'm I admit it. I'm I'm more of a hack. I, I don't I don't necessarily have an original idea, but I find things I like and figure out how to make them work together. So um, like for me, probably uh, I think I get the most out of developing existing material or adapting something else. And I love just, and honestly, I'll even write, I'll write fluff all day long. Like I enjoy uh, even the non-crunchy side right. of games and, and getting into descriptions. Like I've worked on a lot of licensed stuff. So, you know, I've, I've, I've worked in, you know, Sovereign Stone, Dragonlance, Larry Elmore, Snarf Quest comic. Um, we did a thing on Mars uh, for Fast Forward Entertainment. And then I did, uh, you know, Firefly slash Serenity, Battlestar Galactica, Supernatural, um, Demon Hunters from my friends at Dead Gentlemen. That's where I got the backstab with the ballista thing. I did a game with them using Cortex. And so you also work on, you've also designed, you've also been a part of making some like card games as well, correct? Yeah. Uh, over the years, yeah, I've published a couple of card games, one board game, uh, but most, the most, I mean, it's been a, been a while. Like we're now, I think 11 years from when we uh, published uh, my company's card game, Building an Elder God. And, and so how is it different creating a card game as compared to making a system for, say, a, uh, a tabletop role-playing game? There's so many different approaches you can do to both. It's really hard to, to pin down. Right. So it's more like what, how this applies to me. Um, but yeah, for me, RPG systems are, are hugely different because with a card game, you really are in a completely different world where it's all you know you have to decide first what kind of card what is the the standard kind of play are you, you know there's everything these days from deck building to uh you know there's trick based uh card games i, I don't know I, that's really tough just like rpgs there's so many ways to go um and like for the the one we did was very much uh, inspired by older games so we kind of just stole old mechanics lying around because once again Kind of what we do. Um, anyone who ever played, uh, there's an old game from Parker Brothers called Waterworks. I don't know if anybody ever yes. knows that, but it was literally just yeah. you, were, you were literally building pipes and plumbing systems. 
yep. and trying and you'd repair uh, problems with a wrench and stuff like that. Well, building an elder God was taking that same basic tile laying idea, but doing it with Cthulhu monsters and tentacles. So you're trying to build your own monster and shot and take a shotgun to someone else's to slow them down. Right. And, uh, and so it's like, in that case, you know, there, there's the, the kind of play you would normally associate with a card game doesn't exist because you're literally building a picture on the table with cards. And to me, that's a great example of how weird card game design can be because you can have cards that have number values. You can be interacting with pictures. We did one, I did one card game years and years ago where literally you're just basically working with a partner, almost like a bridge partner, but you were trying to create a combined picture of things in front of you. And so it's like, it was purely visual, but I've done plenty of cards that are all, you know, standard with, with numbers and suits. Um, you know, there's, there's, I mean, just the number of games you can play with a standard 52 card poker deck is ridiculous. So once you actually get the ability to design your own cards, it, you kind of basically got the entire, you know, universe to choose from. You just got, it's really, for me, it's always about what's the approach. What's the idea. Um, I never like other game designers are mechanic focus like they they have a cool idea for how this would work like a dice mechanic could work this way or a card mechanic but i'm more like what am i going for like what's the what's the the tone the genre what's the experience i'm looking for and then figuring out like reverse engineering that into game mechanics and usually just stealing stuff that works because once again i you know there are other people there are actual geniuses in my industry who who actually create new and innovative things and i just i'm in awe of those people I, I stick to what I'm good at, which is mostly on the writing and development side. Right. And so, so talk to us a bit about uh, some of that, because now also uh, you have uh, a couple of websites that we can talk about. One is, one is backstab with a ballista. So um, what can, what can your, your readers and your friends and your fans expect from that website? Uh, backstab with a ballista is what I, was the thing I decided to sort of replace all of where I used to post game content intended to be supported by my old Patreon account. So it was like, I decided I wanted to do an RPG focused newsletter. And, and I, I even started it with the idea that I was going to look at the, the new play test for what they call one D and D, which is sort of like the sixth edition coming out mm. next year. So they've been putting out uh, wizards of the coast has been putting out these play test packets to give us a preview and let the, uh, the gaming community have feedback on what's going on with D and D. So I've been literally evaluating the play test packets. I, where I say, how do, how do uh, character origins change things from five E? So I literally took three character sheets from fifth edition. And then I applied all of the new rules changes to see how they would shake out. And then as we go along, you li I literally have red marked them. So people can literally one-to-one -one see how the rules are changing characters on the sheet. So it's a way, so this is me kind of like, putting on my game designer hat and evaluating what the changes are in the new version of D and D and kind of giving everybody a peek under the hood. Like this is what this actually means and why I think it works this way. And what, what are, what is your hope for one D and D? Um, well, funny enough, I, I, because I've been doing some other things, I'm a little bit behind on the stuff I wanted to post on this site. But the funny thing is, I think, the best way to explain uh, what one D&D looks like to me so far is that it's fifth edition taking the best lessons from fourth edition and applying them 
but without telling anybody because there's so much hate for fourth edition out there. But the truth <laughs> is, the like the design philosophy for what they're doing with with one D and D or sixth edition or whatever you want to call it, um, is very much all about tightening up the mechanics and letting more of the story stuff breathe on its own without being directly tied into the rules. Okay. Because fifth edition tried to do several things, some of which were very familiar because I did them in my old games to try to kind of have the, the lore and story side interact with the character sheet. So like uh, easy example is how inspiration is supposed to work in fifth edition. So you have your, when you create your character, you, you pick your background and that lets you, um, you get some personality stuff. So you get like a personality trait, you get a background note, you get um, some person or thing that you have a d deep connection with and you might have a character flaw mm -hmm. and the idea is that if you play one of those elements in your character, the DM is supposed to give you a little reward by by granting you inspiration. Okay, it's However, almost like uh, fate points. It almost kind of has this. It, fate it's also exactly system. how plot points work in Cortex that came out, you know, <laughs> over fifteen years ago. Right, but it's I under I mean that's why the and in Cortex it works a little bit better just because the way the story and the game mechanics flowed back and forth, it was a lot more. Tight. And the thing with D&D, it traditionally, it's sort of like a lot of freeform role-playing with a few skill rolls, and then suddenly you're in an action scene or combat, and suddenly the game is super crunchy. And that's kind of like the rhythm. And that they were trying to do is, well, they were trying to kind of bribe the players to do role-playing. And, and they also, the background would give you some very non-crunchy reward. Like if you were, example, like I think it was the Acolyte. If you mm -hmm. took the acolyte background, we're like, oh, you're a member of a temple. You're welcome in this religion wherever you go and stuff like that, which is a cool story reward. But I think what they found, though, is it's the problem with that kind of thing is that anytime you believe more up to interpretation for the DM, you're putting a lot more pressure on the DM to remember things, to keep up with stuff. So it's like if I'm already a DM keeping track of monsters and campaign stuff and what whose turn it is. I'm suddenly supposed to remember that this other character is obsessed with finding their missing sister and they, and I'm going to give them a inspiration. Like, so like they've removed all of that so far from, from one D and D where it's all, everything is much more tight and crunchy where it's always like, we're going to, we're not going to worry about uh, the game giving you a benefit. Like any DM did that anyway. Like in the old days, if the player did something cool or role played really well, you'd say, you know, take a hundred experience points. You know, you just did something cool. Oh, and then 5th edition was trying to replace that with inspiration. But it gave the DM an extra checklist of things to keep track of. And mm. no, nobody can keep up with all that. So right. uh, the new version is is sticking, like, sticking to very predictable, clean game mechanics. And then just giving you lots of tools to build the world and the story and all the role playing without tying it so hard into the game mechanics itself. Right. And then at the same time, like like all kinds of stuff that was fuzzier and open for interpretation, everything seems to be just a little bit. Like I said, it's a lot more. It's a lot more fourth edition. Like it's very well defined. Uh, so, because the truth is, a very well defined tight game is easier on people, uh, like dungeon masters just getting on board. Right. Like improvising and winging it is something you do when you're experienced and you you got you're comfortable with the game, but. Uh, but so I think that's kind of what they're doing is like, we're going to make sure that the core game 
is there for the players and the DM so that it'll it'll be more balanced. You'll know what to do. And then you can layer on all that story and character stuff as much or as little as you want. Right. And I think that's kind of what they're going for. Right. And, and, and also, it's like, with that said, do you think this is kind of an evolution on how also people are able to create tabletop role-playing communities and play together online and you don't have to actually be in the same room together? Absolutely. And I will say, and this is another thing just based on what I know for their business reasons is, you know, Wizards of the Coast purchased D&D Beyond. So now they own their digital tool set and they've already said that they're they're building their own uh, virtual tabletop to play the new version of D&D on that will be separate from like Roll20 and Fantasy Grounds and the existing products like that. They're going to have their own official one that will integrate with D&D Beyond and very clearly, like whenever you've got a system like that, just anything anything that's closer to a computer game, you're going to need to have tighter, more easily defined stuff. So like if there's a spell effect, it needs to be very clear where the area of effect is on like the battle, the virtual battle mat. You know, you all these things that may have been a little looser and fuzzier, like if you're in that kind of environment, it kind of forces you to think, OK, I got, I got to define everything very strictly so that it'll work with these these digital tools that we're creating. Right. Right. Now. So, so also you also have this, like, so, so those that are interested, those that are listening or, or, or watching this, definitely check out Jamie's, Jamie's website when it comes to that. And people can go to backstab with a ballista.com. Is that well, it's actually, it's uh, if you just go to backstab.fun is it, it, oh, will, that's it will take is. you straight there. I, I found a very fun little uh, URL that I grabbed onto. So backstab.fun will take you to that stuff. And for the moment, it's going to mostly focus on like a D&D 5th edition and the new playtest. But over time, I'm probably going to add in non-D&D game stuff. Like there's a few things in here. You see, I did one. Um, I have a video that I did a while back called uh, about folklore and fantasy. Okay. Uh, and that's that's one where um, I talk about like uh, I did a I did a video essay and I also give a new monster. And I also talk like the relationship between like traditional folklore and the monsters in D and D. Like, what's the difference between a goblin from like Germanic, you know, Middle Age folklore versus the goblin you find in the monster manual? And like, wh how did we get from folklore to this little critter that we see now? So I did a whole essay on that. I may do more of that kind of thing in the future. Also, you have another website that we talked about before we went live. Uh, and and in we mentioned it at the top of the show, your podcast, yes. Chainsaw History. How did this start? You you did, and I, I remember hearing that you did have uh once upon a time you were gonna major in history. So that was I actually was a been history a history major. buff. Yeah, I was yeah. I was a history major from most of college. Right. Um that was in the original, like the original career path that I planned for myself was to be a college history professor. So I was going to uh, just just stay in school forever, literally never leave and just start <laughs> teaching history. And then just like life changed. I, I ended up uh, starting a family in the middle of college um, and then just shifting some things around. Uh, I ended up uh, at the I, I ended up becoming a double major in the very kind of last year. <laughs> I shifted over to, to being an English lit major and minored in history instead. But uh, yeah, that was the original plan. So like the idea of you know, me giving long, boring history lectures is something I do when people don't even ask for it. Um, 
but uh, you know, I, I love history. And to me, the biggest problem, anybody who says they don't like history, it's because they've never been exposed to it in the correct way. Because, mm. you know, there's like anybody who loves Game of Thrones, for example, George R. R. Martin mostly just stole stuff from history, especially the War of the Roses and all these cool little little things and just threw them in there because you know history is all just about people and in difficult situations, making crazy decisions, having to go through in you know insane times. And it's like once you actually like explain it in human terms, it's suddenly way more interesting. It's not facts and figures and dates. That's that's a completely wrong way to look at things. Right. So like I I'm very excited about history and so it's always been my thing to try to to try to pass that on like if I have a cool story to tell and and I also like anybody who listens to Chainsaw History can obviously tell I love I love the weird details that they don't normally tell you <laughs> like um, and I and also too I as part of my own philosophy I think it's a mistake to put historical figures of any stripe uh, up on marble as marble statues, put them on a pedestal, act like they're more than human, which is exactly why um, the first episode was about George Washington the way I did. So like in that case, uh, I'll tell everybody. So my, our very first uh, two-parter was about young George Washington during the, the time of the French and Indian war, otherwise known as the seven years war everywhere else in the world. Um, right. And there is, and, you know, George Washington, literally the, the, the father of our nation, like the most celebrated godlike American figure. So I wanted to make it very clear to the audience where I'm coming from by did two solid hours of talking about <laughs> what he was really like. And, and there's plenty to admire. So it's not like it's trash talking at all, but it's right. humanizing him. So without, you know, spoiling the whole thing or, or talking too, taking too much time, like, for example, like, you know, most people don't realize that like George Washington was like a very ambitious young social climber. He was like the oldest son of a second batch of kids on a second marriage. All of the older kids got the, the paid education and all this like benefits of their father's money and name. And he had to prove himself. He had to work for a living. He never got to go to college, which is why mm. Washington, that's one of the reasons why Washington used Alexander Hamilton to write all of his stuff later on all of his correspondence because he was literally embarrassed by how he wrote. He was, right. sent, he was only half literate. He kind of, if you read George Washington's letters, you know, he's not the most articulate guy because he never benefited from that formal education. And that's fine. He started working as a, a land surveyor when he was like 17 years old and then went on. He wanted to be in the army, but he didn't want to be, but this was the time of the colonies. He desperately wanted more than anything else to be an officer in the British army. And there's a great, piece of artwork of George Washington wearing a British red coat. And that's who he fought for originally. I mean, the French and Indian War was all about that. So if you listen to that episode, you'll hear all about how he, uh, George Washington, kind of wormed his way into an important diplomatic mission and possibly assassinated a diplomat and possibly set off the first world war in the history of the world. Right. <laughs> So, and then on top of that, you can hear about how um, he was a, an amazing hero rescuing a bunch of people from a dangerous, horrible battle where they got ambushed after he had had diarrhea for a solid month and it was riding around on massive hemorrhoids. <laughs> now, so how do you do research on this show? How do you, uh, how do you do this? How do you produce it? Okay. So um, I guess real quick, I'll tell you how this, how the idea started real 
because that kind of feeds into it. So uh, I do the podcast with my sister. Her name's Bambi. And um, with this thing, it, was, it, it really started during the pandemic when a lot of us had a lot more time on our hands. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, how our family decided to create a little quarantine bubble where it's like, we're quarantined, but we'll arch... Our, my sister's family and I, we mingled with each other and avoided the rest of the world. Um, so we hung out a lot more than we did. You know, we were all working from home. People had time off. So a lot of us were just sitting around having drinks, talking. I started telling my usual long-winded stories about stuff. And my sister was firing back with jokes and stuff. And after a few times of that kind of thing happening, I started realizing that there would be like seven people in the room. But my sister and I were the only ones talking Everybody else was kind of listening and laughing and and seemed to be enjoying just the performance we were giving. And that was when it first occurred to me. I was like, well, maybe we should put microphones in front of us and, and see if we could turn this into like a thing. Right. Um, so the way it works uh, is I read several books and read articles and and do some do some digging. Like I started with George Washington. It, it was an offshoot of genealogical research. I found out my family had a connection to the French and Indian War, and then I fell down a rabbit hole about Washington. Um, so anyway, like I read several books, and then I, I write about a 5,000-word script. And so if you listen to Chainsaw History, it's me coming with a prepared script, even though it's written in a slightly more casual, it's not like super formal. Mm-hmm. And the idea is I read it out, and my sister comes in cold and just reacts to it. So And then, <laughs> and then, we, and then she breaks in, and we, we turn it into a conversation, so it's not just me reading out loud. Right. And we make our way through the topic. So, uh, and so, yeah, we've, uh, we did two parter on George Washington. Um, we did a three part, uh, deep dive on George Wallace, former governor of Alabama and once presidential hopeful, because I found out that a very close relative of mine, uh, campaigned for Wallace back in 1972. And that was like really disturbing, like one of the most famously racist, uh, presidential candidates in U S history, or at least modern. Uh, and my family was all about him. Right. And then you had Francis Perkins. Yes. Uh, yeah, we did. We did Wallace. Um, and then uh, Francis Perkins was almost a, a palate cleanser because we, a lot of our episodes are about kind of questionable people. So it's like I wanted right. to go with somebody who's like someone I truly admired and feel like is an unsung hero of American history. Like a lot of the for people who give FDR a lot of credit for the New Deal they have no clue that Francis Perkins was the architect of most of that stuff. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, we did, did an episode of um, Big Jim Folsom, Alabama. He's He was kind of George Wallace's mentor, but he, unlike George Wallace, who was a racist bastard, uh, Jim Folsom was a truly, he, he was a drunk. He was maybe a little, uh, maybe a little too handsy with the ladies, but uh, he, he had like a good heart. He really wanted to help people. Uh, so, so we had at least a couple decent people to talk about in there, along with all the <laughs> the, the monsters and right. Because you also had Nellie Bly as another one of your shows. Yep. So. Yeah, we did. Uh, you'll see a couple of them uh, that say "The Value of" is the title, "The Value mm-hmm. of Christopher Columbus," "The Value of Nellie Bly." That's um, when we realized that we're having me write me doing a bunch of research, writing a long script, and doing all this is it's hard to crank out regular podcasts that way, right? So we wanted to find alternate stuff we could do that wouldn't require scripted content. Uh, and my sister and I were both raised with these uh, children's books that our parents made us 
go through called the value tales uh-huh. and they were very much like these kids history books but they were nothing but propaganda like the first like the first one we did was christopher columbus because that is maybe the biggest joke of them all right it literally like the book literally shows a bunch of of, of natives like sailing back with columbus all happy to go to europe and talking about how everybody was friends it's like completely ignoring that he was a genocidal monster even by his own like the standards of the day he was right. a really bad guy so it was so that was one where we just jump in and we kind of read parts of the book to each other and and have fun with it so we've got stacks and stacks of these value tales to go through uh as we alternate between that and the traditional scripted episodes I'm wondering now too, as as we've been talking, and you know, we we mentioned your podcast, we mentioned your 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 books, uh, we mentioned your game designing. So, what's next for you now, Jamie? Well, that's a good question. Um, I uh, actually just kind of shifted the day job focus because life has been interesting, and uh, right now I'm working with an online game retailer who does a lot of collectible stuff, especially a lot of like old D&D and TSR. So I've been spending a lot of time going through my favorite stuff from back in the day when I was like a teenager, uh, cataloging and inventorying all this stuff. Uh, both there's like a one side that's for, um, for a collection and another side of it that's for, uh, for resale. And it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's a very different thing for me to just jump in on, on this side of things. But at the same time, it's like, it's like getting paid to go back and play with your old toys again. Like I'm getting to like open up all these old box sets that I used to own or looking at these, looking at these old books and remembering where I was. That's like, I not complaining at all. Uh, And ultimately like for the moment, the main thing I'm going to do is focus on those three community supported things I was telling you about. So I'm going to continue writing for, uh, for backstab with a ballista. I'm going to keep doing mostly D and D content for now. Uh, My sister is bugging me for the next Chainsaw History script uh, for us so we can record again. Um, I will give you a, I'll give you a sneak peek at the one I'm working on. So um, anyone who paid attention to the uh, recent Supreme Court ruling on Roe versus Wade, and not to get all political there, but regardless of how you feel, that was a big decision. And the, uh, and the, the majority opinion but from the court cited this old British jurist named Matthew Hale, this guy who lived in the 16th century. <laughs> and in this was a, he, he was cited in the, this majority opinion. This I mean, he's a very famous British jurist. Like he is a guy who established a lot of law that did trickle down into America. So it's not, this doesn't come from nowhere, but at right. the same time, specifically for a case involving women's issues, Matthew Hale was a guy who tried witches mm. and had them executed. He was a guy yeah. who didn't believe it was he he I mean he wrote in a book and in, in his own uh, legal opinions that a husband could not rape his wife because by the biblical definition a, a woman comes from a man's flesh and you cannot rape yourself so it's so the the idea of a man raping his own spouse is just nonsensical in this oh, jurist's point of view so like I could not like the moment I, I that name jumped out at me. I immediately once again did my like deep dive where I started reading him. I was like, "Wow, that like the Supreme Court cited this this guy who tried actual witches uh, as one of the reasons why women should have less rights now." So, like, I think we should talk about that. So, I, I'm the the next episode is going to be all about Sir Matthew Hale, celebrated uh, jurist wow. of 16th century Britain. 
your podcast so people can still listen to your podcast that's Absolutely. people can still go to backstab.fun that's they the word there and then okay. chainsawhistory.com takes you to the website and if you just want to subscribe if you just go to listen.chainsawhistory.com it'll take you immediately to the little thing that'll just click and you can subscribe on any podcast platform you want we're literally everywhere we're on that's spotify awesome. amazon apple music just stitcher Google. I mean, we're like we're on like like twenty seven podcast platforms. Just nice. so if you just look for Chainsaw History, you'll find us. Yeah, all one word, Chainsaw yeah. History. Well, the yeah. the title is two separate words, but in the website right. it's one. Right. Perfect. Well, thanks a lot, Jamie. You know, I've been looking forward to chatting with you for months now. So I'm really, really glad appreciate we're able it. Thank you for having time. me on. You're welcome. Did you, because you remember, think about that backstab with the ballista. One of my favorite, I remember when I was in college, uh, my buddy who had all the D&D stuff had uh, these books of, I don't know, like a book of treasures. They're like, it almost feel like they're leather bound, not size, smaller ones. And it was all these different treasures. And I remember this one. I don't know if you know this one is um, Catapult Seeds. Oh, yeah. And I know which books you're talking about. Those were the uh, Encyclopedia Magica set. Yeah. Which was all the magic items in AD&D second edition. Yeah, I owned those books back in the day. <laughs> I love, and I still to this day love that idea of the catapult seed. So basically, yeah. you would throw it's like a seed that, but did the same damage as a catap, like a a catapult, right? Yeah, There's all kinds of crazy items like that. <laughs>